Welcome to the Medical Menemist Podcast, your source for memory techniques and accelerated learning in higher education. Now, here's your host, Chase DeMarco. Welcome to our first expert panel on this topic. We're going to discuss memory in your studies and specifically in medical studies. Today, we are joined back, and I would like to welcome some of our expert panel, memory expert panel members, multiple world memory record holder and current resident, Alex Mullen. Alex, nice to have you on. Hey, Chase. Thanks for having me on. It's good to be here. Great to have you. Multiple U.S. world record holder and author, Nelson Dellis. Hey, Chase. How's it going? And mnemonics practitioner, trainer, and author, Anthony Mativier. Always good to see you, Chase, and everyone else, Nelson and Alex. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, you too. It's great to have you all on this call together. This is going to be a very special episode. Hopefully, we won't have too many more technical hiccups, but I think this will be a great topic. We're going to discuss a lot of things that students have asked in the past, and you know, often it's me trying to answer them or asking one of you, but I haven't spoken to, in particular, two of you in quite some time, so this will be great to recap and kind of tackle those problems that a lot of the student audience has. So the first question is going to be for Alex. What is memory and why is it important to our audience, specifically in like medical and grad school audience? Right. So, I mean, I think the way that I like to think about memory, which is a little bit different than I think how a lot of people think about it is, you know, people, people tend to think about memory as sort of a storehouse or a library. You just kind of have things on the shelves. And when you want to go retrieve a memory, you go, you know, pull it off the shelf. And my personal preference is to think about memory a lot more just like a lens memory as a lens, you know, that you use to, to view the world. And so, you know, everything that you encounter and everything you experience is filtered through, you know, what your memories are. And so, you know, I think as a graduate student or a medical student, anytime you see a new piece of information is going to be, you know, your, your processing of that information is going to be affected by whatever memories you already have. And so I think it's Tim Urban, who's, who writes the blog, Wait But Why, had a, had a nice analogy that I like to reference, which is that knowledge is kind of like a tree trunk. And so the more kind of, you know, knowledge you acquire, the more, tr- you know, the, the more of the trunk that you build, the more of the branches that you build. And so any new information that comes in just kind of falls nicely and settles on those, on those branches that you've built. And so, you know, the more, the more memories you have and the more information you kind of have to work with, the easier it is for you to, to process new material and to remember new material. So it's really just kind of a exponential effect. And I think that's why memory is important for everyone, but especially for, for students. Great answer. And getting away from the, we need to stop memorizing things. We need to understand them. I like that. Anthony, what is a mnemonic? And in particular, you cover a lot with memory palaces. So maybe we can refresh that audience on what these topics actually are, what they mean. Yeah, a mnemonic is interesting. It's an umbrella term. It just means memory technique, right? So technically, learning can be considered a memory technique that it falls under that. It's just, it's a, a matter of scale. It's a matter of definition. It's a matter of effectiveness. And so in the, in the hierarchy, if you think about, you know, mnemonics as we usually talk about them, which is elaborative encoding, making things vivid or having action and so forth, that's sort of the, the top you know, king pin kind of mnemonic that you could use. And in multi-sensory, Nelson's great with making sure that things are multi-sensory and remember it. That's one of my favorite parts of that book. So if you really want to think about it, it's just memory techniques, whatever it is, whether it's just showing yourself the same information over and over again, that is a technique. Or if you're like kinesthetic, auditory, visual, emotional, these kinds of things that you're adding to elaborate, 
associations, then that also is a mnemonic. It's just much more, or typically a much more powerful one. Great answer. I like it. So Nelson, being one of the memory champions in this expert panel, what are some of the misconceptions you hear a lot from people about memory and about memory athletes and kind of the expectations of it? Yeah, uh, some of the, the most common ones are that we are born with this skill, that it's, or just in general, that the idea that somebody has a good memory or a bad memory, and that's kind of the end of the story. And I feel like a lot of the memory competitors, especially the ones who train a lot and make it to the top, most of them come from a background where they didn't have a particularly striking memory. And that's a very common story that you hear. And I think it goes to show just how learnable these skills are, which is a big misunderstanding by many. Um, or, or, you know, maybe it's, it's something that they don't want to believe because it's easier to maybe not believe that they could work on their memory. But that's one of the biggest questions I get is when did you realize you had this gift? And it's, it's not a gift. It's a trained skill. Uh, the other thing, yeah, the, the other very common one is, is, is this idea of photographic memory, um, whether it exists or not. And people just kind of blindly believe that it does exist. And I personally don't, I've never seen anybody who has it. You know, you hear some kind of anecdotes about savants in history that have been able to do that to some capacity, but talking about an everyday person or someone who competes in a competition, never seen it. So I don't believe that that exists in, 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 the, in the way that people talk about it so freely. I think that's the misconception a lot of people have with having a good memory is you're more naturally towards that, you know, photographic memory. Yeah, just like memory a or snapshot, whatever. you got it. Yeah. Yes, which doesn't seem to exist in the literature. And I think everyone on this call probably agrees that we started digging into these memory techniques and mnemonics because we didn't believe we had very good memories. So I think we can all agree on that. Front. It's also just such a strange word to use because photographs are so suspect to yellowing, folding, distortion, cameras get dusty. Like it's just the most bizarre choice of uh, metaphors, really, if you think about it. Yeah, because they're not always accurate. You're right. right. Yeah, and point. they're limited, right? So that that is a power, the limit, you know, of being able to have focus and so forth. But overall, if you think of the metaphor, it's just the, it's sort of the, the, the weakest on the chain that you could choose uh, of all the possible things. <laughs> we should talk, it should be like 8K, like high quality video footage is, is, is what people have. Yeah. Not photographic. Know, something like, it's like Hubble, <laughs> Hubble telescope. Or yeah, whatever. there you go. <laughs> Alex, as a proponent of flashcards for specifically for a medical study, do you have certain techniques that you would recommend for using mnemonics within your flashcards or do you combine those techniques at all? Yeah, I would say that I do combine them. I, I think most of the most of the information that I learn in flashcard form doesn't really have an associated mnemonic. Like just kind of ballparking it, I would guess like maybe something like 25% of the flashcards that I make maybe have an associated mnemonic. I think that memory palaces can work really well along with flashcards. Um, and so usually what I do is I just have a mnemonic field in the in the Anki card that I use, and I'll just kind of write in a mnemonic that's associated with it. But and that's the that's the primary way. Or you know, if I have an acronym that I'm using to remember something, I'll also write that into the mnemonic field. But I think that the two of them can work very well together. And I think sometimes there's a, there's a tendency to sort of compare, you know, the the efficacy of you know spaced repetition or or you know, flashcards with memory palaces or mnemonics. And I think that that's kind of a misconception because they, they can actually work very well together. In general, I would say that my favorite sort of, you know, mnemonic kind of as Anthony was talking about is really to just 
use, you know, spacing and the, and the testing effect. But then I think, you know, memory techniques or, you know, what we think of as, as mnemonics, you know, memory palaces, acronyms, thing like, things like that work really well as a supplement. So I, I'm, I love using both of them as much as I can. Great. Uh, Anthony, I kind of want to pose a similar question to you because I know that you love visual mnemonics so much and not as much of a fan of the, uh, the flashcard basis. It's slower for your space repetition. Do you find any common ground between those techniques in your personal studies? Yeah, usually it comes down to the information, right? So I do use flashcards. I just use them in different ways. So, you know, this is a particular Chinese word and I can add sorts of things that allow it that it's got some information on the back of this particular card, but typically I don't have any information that would tell me what the, what the word is. I just have to look and I'm thinking, you know, what the heck was I trying to tell myself here? So that's the testing effect that Alex mentioned there. It's, it's sort of force testing. Now, if I really ha ha get stuck, I can go and look in the textbook or wherever I, I, I came across that word, but it depends on the information. So Chinese is really, and I think uh, Alex has experience with it as well. It's its whole order of magnitude different than say Sanskrit that I'm also studying or you know, even German. German is a walk in the park compared to Chinese. So I have used use cards, but very strategically. And I make sure I'm not cheating. So the elaborations there are, you know, what is this? Well, that's, it's YouTube symbol. So that must be a U sound. And then the UN building is there, right? And then Donkey Kong is there. So it must be like something like UN Dong, right? And then I'm thinking, what is Donkey Kong doing here? Well, he's lifting a donkey. So this must have to do with fitness, you know, that sort of thing, right? And, um, you know, that that's very helpful to just have to not have to look at it. And then you have the like it's fourth tone and fourth tone. And so, you know, you just got a 44 there to remind you, or I might have a drawing of what 44 is, but yeah, I do it. It's just also when I talk the big talk against flashcards and all that sort of stuff, what I'm trying to get at is, are you strengthening what you're doing or are you weakening it? And there's a lot of time dumped into activity, right? That doesn't lead to accomplishment. And so it's just getting people to think critically in a bit of a theatrical sort of style, sort of Zen, you know, like, what are you doing? Are you actually doing something? Is it an accomplishment as opposed to an activity? Because there's a lot of advice out there about Anki and so forth that just leads to activity that isn't really getting to accomplishment. I'm waiting for, you know, the Nobel Prize for, um, for flashcard space repetition software that has totally rippled the world. Like it's... I don't quite see it there, but I do see that you can use it and I do use it myself, but I'm not going to spend time on software with it. I'm going to draw with my hand because I just personally find way more uh, results from that, but you could replicate it digitally if you wanted. Perfect. I, I love the differences in how people use these techniques and to what degree they interchange them because that's a question a lot of students have. They're looking for the ultimate technique and there is no ultimate technique necessarily. It depends on the material, depends on the person. So there's a lot of variations that they should consider. Nelson, when discussing the story method, do you find that, that the story method and other mnemonics such as the memory palace are separate techniques? Is there a lot of overlap? How do you distinguish for someone that's maybe trying to figure out which one they should use for a certain topic or, or if they should use both or how to approach that? Yeah, in my mind, I always feel like I always put the memory palace kind of at the top as just proof using it that it can accomplish some really impressive things that maybe 
may not be possible with the, the, the story method, but I don't think that makes the story method invaluable. I think there are definitely situations where you might want to use that. I think the only thing missing from the, the story method is, is the chance that you blank out on a, a part in the middle, and then it's hard to retrieve the rest of the story. Whereas with the, the memory palace, the way that it's constructed, if you miss a, or there's a gap, the structure that it's in, the palace, kind of already holds the pieces after it and before it, so you don't lose the rest of it. The benefit to using a story method, I think, is it's just really quick to, to, to do on the fly. There's no preparation you need to do in terms of creating your memory palace or deciding your memory palace. You can just go. And there's obviously um, some use cases for that as well. So it might depend on the type of material the students are looking to cover and for how long they wish to cover. Exactly. Yeah. So I, and that, I think that's always an important thing when you're, you know, taking stock of what memory techniques are available and what you're studying and how you plan to recall the information or use it. I don't think there's one size fits all. It really depends on how you plan on using that information. And, um, I think people sometimes forget that they try to use always the memory palace and it's maybe not the best thing or the other way around using the story method, they should be using a memory palace, but you really got to think, okay, how am I actually going to be using this information in real life on a test, speaking the language, whatever. Right. And then make your decisions based on that. Perfect. I completely agree. Alex, difficult topic that I've come across in the past is if you're dealing with a certain subject that is very similar, like trying to remember all of the different immunodeficiencies, which ones have elevated IgA or decreased IgA or IgG or IgA, all the different immunoglobulins. There's a lot of very similar aspects to these diseases. And sometimes it's just a jumble of letters being thrown at you to distinguish between them. Do you have any particular way that you approach those specific nuances for very similar topics? I mean, not to sound like a broken record, but I think that I think it goes back to kind of what Anthony and Nelson are saying with, you know, it, it really does depend on the material specifically. And so, I mean, certainly there are cases when you're trying to differentiate things where I think a memory palace is useful, cases where it's not as useful, cases where acronyms might be more useful, cases where just kind of, you know, sort of more rote, more, more rote learning with, you know, SRS flashcards is, is the most useful. I think it really, you know, just kind of depends on, on what, what the material is and, and how it lends itself to, to visual mnemonics or not. I do, you know, when it comes to things that have, that just are begging to be contrasted though, I mean, that, that's a case where I find it very useful to just specifically create, you know, flashcards that test that comparison. You know, so if you have two diseases with a similar presentation, you, you know, you might just make a flashcard that says, you know, how do you differentiate A versus B? And then you kind of focus on that thing that, that sticks out or differentiates them. Yeah. Hope, I mean, that's, that's kind of my, my basic approach at least. Yeah. I think that's why a lot of students end up seeing or making charts, but then the charts are innately difficult to remember and distinguish. So there are definitely better techniques that students can utilize for those nuances. Anthony, one thing that I notice students don't necessarily think about when they listen to the show or consider using mnemonics in their studies is how to implement some of these maybe outside of the classroom, maybe in the clinical setting. For instance, remembering names of staff at a hospital you're rotating at or something along those lines. Do you find that these could be useful techniques for you know remembering names, remembering maybe certain locations in the hospital or something along those lines outside of the study arena? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you meet a new person and you can within seconds have imagery that helps you remember their names. 
You can use their shoulders to help remember details. You know, a lot of people talk about remembering names using the face. I never use the face because I don't want some sort of obstruction between, you know, my communication with a person and whatnot. But I'll use their shoulders and over their head, behind the room. And look, anytime you walk into a room, you've got instant, well, maybe I shouldn't say anytime, but you've usually got eight stations that you could use in a memory palace instantly because there's four walls and four corners. Rare is the room that doesn't have that. And if you want to go for the full Vaughn cube, you can use the ceiling and the floor. But um, in terms of remembering parts of a hospital, that's super fascinating. And I, I would have to, I, I have to run some experiments around that because we tend to map out the space naturally, but there are some people who, who do find they get quite lost and disoriented quite a bit. And even, even I'm a little bit like that. Like it's, it's been hard for me to know North, East, South, West and so forth. But one thing to do is just memorize street names or building names. And sometimes buildings will have streets between them. And when you use that same way that you would memorize a person's name to memorize streets, I think you get the effect of spatially locating them in your brain. It certainly works for me in, in new cities and I've lived all over the place and I usually memorize at least core street names. And then that situates them somehow a lot better in terms of getting your orientation. I'm going to make this a general follow-up question for anyone that would like to answer. How do you use specifically name facial recognition techniques when everyone is either wearing scrubs or a lab coat? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. I tend to associate people pretty pretty closely with the scenario that I met them in. You know, so if I if I remember meeting someone, you know, while being on the oncology team with them, I really tie a lot to to a, the idea of onco being on the oncology service and B, the specific oncology workroom that we had in the hospital. So, I mean, just tying those people and their names to a particular location rather than, you know, necessarily a physical feature is generally what I, what I do. And I'm, I may or may not be alone in this. I, I like to make flashcards for people's names because I think that in terms of, at least for me, in terms of the, the long-term, you know, recognition of a name, you know, say months down the road when you haven't seen somebody maybe in a long time and you want to be able to rem remember their name, you know, after seeing them in a split second, I think that's, you know, flashcards are helpful for that. And so when I, whenever I do those flashcards in my deck, I generally will, will associate that person with the physical location and just, you know, the same way for the same reason that the memory palace works, that technique, that technique kind of works as well for me. Just let Alex answer that one. Cause he's probably doing it more. Probably even better since a lot of doctors have very difficult to pronounce names. Yeah, you know, another thing you can do, there, there's, a, there's a very little, uh, at least I never hear many people talk about it. In Ars Combinatoria, there are, and this is from Louis, there's lots and lots of recommendations to look at how tall things are, how wide they are, um, other sorts of things like how much, just think how much does that person weigh potentially. That, that can be a very, very important part of distinguishing things because they might be having scrubs or, or masks and COVID era or whatever, but there's going to be differentiating factors. And I've, I'm not a medical practitioner, but I've had more surgeries than I would have liked. And sometimes they have Snoopy on their scrubs or they have, you know, some funny socks or whatever, right? So there's almost always something. And then to the thing about using flashcards for names, I do a lot of presentations in the community, or at least I used to before the lockdowns. And I always keep the business cards, not so much as flashcards, but you have no idea how good it is to go through them, you know, every once in a while, because some of those people, 
that you meet in the future. If you can remember their names, it pays off. And just a typical example, there's an angel investor here and his name's Simon. I hadn't seen him for two years. And I said, hey, you're Simon, aren't you? And it, you never know where that's going to go because I might have a crazy idea for an app or something like that, right? Anyway, so if you keep people's business cards and you just, even though you've memorized them and you review them just to refresh, uh, that's, a, that's a very good practice indeed. You never know when it's going to pay off. And by the way, he's very tall and handsome. <laughs> Not too fat. <laughs> and you bring up an interesting point now with COVID, it's probably even more difficult if you're new to the you know, residency or wherever you're at, new to a new hospital. Looks like we have a few minutes left here. Nelson, I think we covered this a little bit in the past, but what do you do with pre-made mnemonics? Do you ever use them? Do you find any utilization of them for students? Yeah, I mean, I have, I mean, just because I compete a lot or used to compete a lot, I preset mnemonics for numbers and cards. Cards isn't very translatable to real life, but the numbers have come in super helpful. I've worked on that for many years. I'd say my system is pretty complicated, but it's been really helpful just for everything. Phone numbers, IDs, passport numbers, credit card numbers, numbers that I have to just hold on the fly. And I don't know how I would have done that without having spent the time learning that system, uh, which was a bit of a pain in the butt uh, when I first learned it. But, you know, that was years ago. It's, it's just a part of me at this point. In terms of anything else, no, I mean, names I was going to say, kind of, but that's just from practice. I have a lot of preset images for names, common names, but that's just closely tied to the common images that come up a lot when I just practice a lot or ones that are already baked into my number system. If I have a name that's kind of associated to a number and I see that name, then I already have an image set for it, you know, but outside of that, no, I, I really like to improvise with, with the information that comes my way. Cause it makes it a lot more open to being memorable rather than kind of constrained. Okay. Sort of a follow-up from that, Alex, do you find certain themes that are, that pop up a lot in medicine benefit from having maybe a, what I call a visual dictionary, certain mnemonics, certain visuals that you use a lot. And especially when it comes to distinguishing similar processes or names, like we mentioned before, like M protein versus M spike on electrophoresis or all these similar sounding things. Do you find that you have a certain standardized set of mnemonics that you like to reuse a lot or do you make them more on the fly? I think that so I think the answer to your question is yes. I, I do definitely like to kind of carry the same mnemonic throughout all different kind of fields if I can. You know, so if I if I have an image for, you know, I don't know, carbamazepine as a as a drug, you know, I always use a carpet. So and it pops up everywhere as a carpet or a particular, you know, if I if there's a process involving the liver or I, I want to remember there's some sort of liver toxicity, I always use the same image. And I think that is helpful just to, you know, always kind of bring that idea to mind visually in a very easy way. Is that kind of what you're what you're getting at? Yeah, I think so. Um, using certain top, so for instance, when you learn certain things in medicine, often we're at least from my school, we're taught discipline approach first, so you learn them all separately, and then when you learn them more integrated, you might have to reuse those. But that will benefit you if you can remember them from your initial learning, using them in different settings. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the short answer is that I, I definitely try as much as possible to to reuse images that I've made as much as I can. And if if I could just comment real quick about the use of pre-made mnemonics in medicine, just because that's that's a topic that interests me a lot. 
I think that, you know, there, there is, there, there seems to be a pretty long ongoing debate about, you know, self-made mnemonics versus pre-made mnemonics, like for instance, Picmonic or Sketchy Medical. And, you know, certainly lots of people feel that, you know, personal mnemonics are more, more impactful and, and more effective. I think just having kind of glanced at the, the, the literature for pre-made mnemonics versus, versus self-made, it's actually pretty strong for pre-made mnemonics still. Um, not to say that pre-made mnemonics are much better than are, are, are really any better than um, self-made mnemonics, but that they actually are still quite effective. And there's been a couple of different studies that look specifically at medical, pre-made medical mnemonics uh, that shows that they're, they're quite effective as well. And so I think if you take that into account and you factor in the obvious benefit of, hey, you know, lots and lots more people are going to be using these, these pre-made mnemonics um, because it's just easier and more convenient and they don't have to, you know, put in all that work themselves. I think that they are very valuable. And so it's not to necessarily say that, you know, watching a video by Sketchy or Picmonic is more effective than making your own memory palaces, but it's still certainly of, of value in the literature. So I, I think that's an important point to make that people have asked me in the past. And, you know, I think Sketchy in particular does a great job with applying that kind of principle that you were talking about, I think, um, in terms of, you know, carrying uh, particular images forward in all different kinds of contexts and having them reappear in different places. And that they do a great job of that. And I think that it, it's benefit really carries through and being able to kind of connect different disparate concepts and areas. Interesting. I haven't heard literature comparing self-made versus pre-made necessarily in the aspect of medical studies. Just the creation of the materials yourself tend to lead to a stronger long-term memory. But that's interesting. I want to look into that more now. Right. I guess some of the research that I've seen is not necessarily self-made versus pre-made. It's more just, you know, does, does, does pre-made work, does self-made work, you know, when you just compare it to rote memorization or rote learning. And I think the answer is in both cases been in a lot of cases, yes, it does. They both, they both work pretty well and there's no convincing evidence that one is necessarily better than the other. Just generally speaking, I'm sure there's cases where it's, you know, use specific or case specific, but I just think that that's a, that's an important point for people to appreciate. Okay. Interesting point. Well, it looks like we only have a few minutes left of this call. So I'd like to give each of you a moment to tell the audience where we can find out more about you. And of course, thank you for coming on. Let's start with Nelson Dellis. Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. First of all, you can head to my website, nelsondellis.com, which links to everything else. But my main platform where I share a lot of stuff is on YouTube with a lot of memory tip videos. You just search my name there. And uh, I have a couple books you just search on Amazon. Just came out with a new one for middle school kids. Congratulations on the latest book. Anyone with kids should Thank be you. very interested in that one. I hope so, yeah. <laughs> Anthony Mativier. Well, I'm at magneticmemorymethod.com. And really, since we're talking to medical people, I would just encourage you to have a look. I'll give you it for free if you want. Uh, the Victorious Mind, which is really about my battle with depression. And I really hope that doctors will, I mean, I haven't figured out how to do it yet, but just get it in the hands of as many doctors as possible because I got a lot of bad medical advice. Um, and if it all worked out, but if people just knew that memory training has scientifically proven benefits for relieving issues with depression, then I think that a lot of lives could be improved if not saved. So. Um, that's there for you. And it's definitely an interesting read with a lot of information on different meditations and such I'd never heard of before as well. And last but not least, Alex Mullen. Yeah, thank, thanks again for having me, having me too. Sorry, I'm, I'm kind of monopolized the call at the end there with that <laughs> <laughs> diatribe. But um, 
so I mean, you can you can find me at mullenmemory.com where both my wife and I, Kathy Chen, we kind of write about just mnemonics in general, usually with respect to medicine and and what our experiences have been using them. That's that's kind of the main place, you know, that 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 I've been involved in with regard to memory. We're on Twitter as well uh, at Mullen Memory. Haven't put out a whole bunch of stuff recently because we're we're kind of uh, we just you know switched from medical school to residency and then also moved from Mississippi to Alabama to do a different just to start a new residency program. So things have been kind of in flux, but um, hopefully we'll kind of get back to that pretty soon and, and add some more content to Mullen Memory. So, but yeah, thanks again for, for having me on. It's a pleasure. I'm sure the students can't wait to get more information from you. Well, thank you all for joining us. And I would love to maybe do this again in the future. This is great to have all of these great memory experts and trainers, champions on here. And hopefully the audience finds a lot of benefit from it as well. Thank you. Thank you, Chase. Thank you. Have you been thinking about one-on-one training and tutoring at a reasonable price? Well, Prospective Doctor is now sponsoring a limited number of free sessions with me each month. To register, you can go to prospectivedoctor.com slash chase and register for a free 30-minute coaching session. If you decide that you want to use their MCAT or USMLE tutoring services, you can now use the code CHASE10 to receive 10% off of your first $400 spent. Just enter CHASE10 and get your discount now.